Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host today. My name is Brian Hamilton, and I'm here with Dr. Joan Cashin. She is professor of history at The Ohio State University and the author and editor of six books on the history of the Civil War era. She joins us today to talk about her latest, War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War, released last month by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Cashin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brian. I'm delighted to be here. Now, you are a widely respected scholar of the social and cultural history of the American South and the Civil War. I'm wondering what, is, <laughs> I'm wondering what has led you into exploring the environmental history and material culture of the period. Uh, sure. Well, I've always been interested in it, interested in both environmental history and material culture and material world. I published an article in 1994 uh, on perceptions of landscape in Annabelle, Virginia. Still get cited uh, sometimes, uh, but off and on for years, I would come across this in the archives. I would come across incidents that happened in the antebellum period or during the war involving material culture, material objects, the environmental context of people's lives. So I would write it down. <laughs> you know, I would take notes on it, uh, anything unusual, anything dramatic, startling, shocking. And I always tell my graduate students the same thing, that if you're researching in the archives and you come across something unusual, then just write it down. <laughs> write it down, by golly, because you might end up citing it one day uh, in one of your publications. So I've been collecting notes on these themes for a long time, and I started publishing on material culture about uh, eight or nine years ago. I started to uh, do some articles on the war and the material world broadly defined. And I began to realize that there was so much information here that, that it was enough for a book. So I, I went to work on this book. And what I found is uh, that uh, both armies need a tremendous amount of resources. You know, this is true for every war. Our armies need and use up a great many resources. Uh, they need material resources. They need food. They need timber. Uh, they often exploit the built environment, including the private home. Uh, and they also need the knowledge and skills that the civilian population uh, has to offer. You know, people in the, in the local neighborhood know more about such important things as where to cross uh, a river. You know, where is the easiest ford so that a group of soldiers can cross a river. And, of course, in an agricultural society, people always will have on hand food, timber, and the built environment, things that, that both armies uh, needed. And I decided to focus on the interactions between the armies uh, and the white population because a lot of research has already been done by scholars on the armies and the African-American population, both uh, slaves and free people. And also uh, the, the policies are different. Uh, both armies have uh, distinctive policies for uh, dealing with black Southerners. So I thought it would be a, a, a new topic, you know, striking out in new territory if I focused on the armies and uh, white uh, civilians. 
So I found that from the beginning of the war, from 1861, both armies take what they need. Uh, they believe that they have the right to do that. Uh, they assert what both armies refer to as military necessity. You know that if the military needs it, then they have the right to uh, take it. Uh, and both armies are supposed to be abiding by the Articles of War, which had been written up in 1806 and are adopted by both armies in 1861, and that prohibits plundering and pillaging. Uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, soldiers and officers in both armies uh, do things that their comrades define as plunder and pillaging, and, and civilians define uh, their actions as plunder uh, and pillaging. So, so this struggle breaks out between uh, armies and civilians, and I argue that this is a struggle that's a parallel to the military struggle between the two armies. There's also uh, this other fight, an increasingly desperate fight, between uh, armies and civilians over who will get access to things that uh, human beings uh, need to survive. So that, that's the, one of the basic themes of the book is that uh, is that both armies disregard procedure, they disregard policy, uh, the needs of the moment uh, are all important, and they believe and say repeatedly in writing that military necessity gives them the right to take uh, whatever uh, they need to wage war. Now, the civilian population is, of course, divided uh, politically. Uh, there are civilians who are pro-Confederate and civilians who are pro-Union. And historians kind of forgot about those uh, Unionist uh, civilians, as we call them. Uh, they, they've been sort of rediscovered in the last generation or so. Uh, but the armies are acutely aware of them, both armies. You know, both armies know that there are uh, white people out there who have conflicting political loyalties. Some of them are loyal to the Confederacy. Some of them are loyal to the Union. And then, of course, there are people who are just apolitical. And, and I mention this throughout the book. I think historians have sometimes lost sight of this part of the population there are always people in every society who are just not interested in politics. They just want to be left alone. You know, they're focused on their own lives. So, so those people are out there, the apolitical, who often try to maintain their neutrality if they can, because they, they don't want to take sides. <laughs> but uh, the armies try to uh, get friendly assistance from white civilians who are on their side, and they try to punish white civilians who are sympathetic to the other army. And and both the armies behave in the same way. So so Confederate troops and Confederate officers, uh, if they have to tear down a house, they will try to ask around and find out who are the Unionists in this neighborhood. So that, that house will be targeted, uh, and the other army is, is doing the same thing. But what, what begins to happen uh, as the years pass is that civilians in general begin to realize that both armies pose a threat to their survival. You know, that these armies are so enormous, uh, they, their, their needs are, are relentless, and they will take whatever they need. And, and civilians, even those who have deep political convictions, begin to realize that both of those armies can hurt them 
<laughs> both of those armies can can inflict serious damage on the family, on the household, uh, and they start pulling back. They they start getting focused on their own survival, on protecting themselves. So this serious struggle breaks out between armies and civilians, and it gets more and more intense. It starts in 1861. You know, I found that, that very early in the war, both armies are acting on the, this philosophy of military necessity and taking whatever they wish. And, and it continues into 62 and 63 and 64, and the armies get bigger and bigger, and the damage uh, on the infrastructure of the region the environment broadly defined gets worse and worse, and eventually white civilians start to turn on each other. So that uh, these assumptions about communalism that, that I described for the antebellum period start to disappear. Now the, the book begins with a chapter on the Old South on how white Southerners viewed their uh, material resources and how they viewed each other, and I argued that they believe in stewardship that they are supposed to take good care of the resources they have, the resources they need to survive, food, timber, and, and housing. And they're supposed to show some regard for the needs of other people, too, you know, other white people. This is obviously something that they, they do not apply to slaves or, or, or free black people. But, but the, inside the white population, there is a sense of community or communalism, as I call it, where people feel like they, they have obligations to each other. They're not supposed to uh, neglect the needy or the suffering or the struggling inside of the white population. Uh, and all that starts to go by the boards, uh, pardon the pun, <laughs> uh, starts to go by the boards uh, as the war unfolds, and especially when you get into the last year or so uh, of the war, this idea that, uh, people are supposed to look out for each other and the idea that they are supposed to safeguard their resources, that food is a precious commodity and it should be preserved and you share it with people who are hungry. You know, that's the antebellum understanding of how society should work. But that idea, and the same with timber and the same with, with shelter, uh, all these connected ideas start to disintegrate uh, as the war goes by. And by 1864 or so, all those notions have just been blasted away. So you have civilians who would never have have uh, stolen food from anybody in the community before the war. You know, now in 1864 and 65, they're willing to do that because they believe that their own survival uh, is at stake. So uh, I this is how I portray the antebellum uh, period and the war period. And I also close the book by talking about memory, the way that the collective memory in the white southern population is created. And there's a moment, I think it lasts about a year or so, when white southerners are willing to admit to each other, to journalists passing through, uh, that, that the Confederate Army uh, took whatever it needed. The Confederate Army visited harm upon the white southern population, including those people who were pro-Confederate, at least, you know, early on. There is that, that moment of uh, honesty and candor, but that disappears, and pretty quickly the series of mythologies get created, uh, mostly focusing on the thieving Yankee army 
you know, that the Northern Army took everything it wanted and trampled all over people and stole from people and, and isn't it, uh, a disgrace? Uh, whereas, uh, during the war and even right after the war, a number of white Southerners were willing to admit that, uh, the Confederate Army was just as dangerous, was just as damaging. So, so that's the sort of first step in this falsification process whereby a false, uh, inaccurate, grossly inaccurate memory of the war gets, uh, gets created. And, and part of that, uh, uh, falsehood is the disappearance of unionists. You know, the very existence of these people, that they were white southerners who were pro-union, and not only were pro-union, but were willing to assist the army, you know, by giving them information, by sharing food with them, giving up their timber, letting them stay in their houses and so on. You know, th- those people just, just get wiped out of the collective memory. So this uh, mythology is created that all white Southerners supported secession. That's not true. Uh, that they supported the war effort. They supported the Confederacy. That's not true either. But it's kind of a comforting uh, uh, illusion uh, if you've just lost a terrible war in which many people died and the infrastructure is more or less uh, destroyed. And that mythology takes deep roots in the collective memory of white Southerners, and it's persisted for a very, very long time. You know, I think it was really on the last generation or so that the, the general public has started to uh, – entertain different ideas about uh, what went on during the war. And that's a rather long uh, <laughs> summary uh, of the book. <laughs> it's such a rich, such a rich book. And I, I want to dig back into basically everything, everything you just said. Um, but uh, maybe if we go back to, you know, after this opening chapter um, about communalism in the, in the old South, you start to look, you know, resource by resource, but before you get to food and, and timber and shelter, you talk about, people of, of human resources um and you're and you're especially interested in civilians and and really throughout throughout the book as you said you impress on readers that um when it came to the use of resources that the that the similarities between the united states and the confederate armies are are more striking than their differences so i guess maybe maybe you could tell us a bit about what some of the commonalities between both armies was when it came to how they interacted with with civilians oh sure well, both armies need uh, information. Uh, they need information about geography. You know, the Confederacy is a big place. It's bigger than continental Europe. Uh, and local people know a lot about uh, the highways and byways, the safe places to travel, whether or not a bridge is out, uh, who lives around the bend, you know, where is the closest encampment of the enemy uh, army? And the soldiers ask for civilians, ask rather, they ask civilians for their help. They ask them for information. And friendly civilians are often very happy to comply. Uh, hostile civilians will, uh, we know, tell deliberate lies to the military. You know, pro-union uh, Southerners, and this is all documented, you know, there's a tremendous amount of documentation available on interactions between soldiers and civilians. It's just immense. But uh, uh, civilians uh, will sometimes deliberately mislead the other army. You know, pro-union uh, civilians will deliberately tell lies 
to uh, Confederate troops and, and and the same for pro-Confederate civilians when they're dealing with uh, federal troops. Uh, so they they have precious information, and both armies want it and they need it. I've also found that civilians committed espionage, you know, which is against uh, the law. <laughs> uh, they will actually do spying uh, for both armies, and their cover is that they're civilians. You know, they're they're non-military. They're uh, they're supposed to be sort of protected by that. Uh, but in fact, uh, civilians uh, carry messages. Uh, they do all kinds of the traditional acts of espionage. Uh, they are often unidentified by name in the records. Uh, uh, federal officers will refer to a good union man who gave me this information, or good union people in this county uh, told me, you know, the, what was going on. That that sort of thing. So. So uh, civilians engage in espionage. Uh, it's often done kind of on a spontaneous basis. I found a small number of people who seem to be professional spies, uh, and that really bothers uh, both armies. They're, they're both quite paranoid about espionage. They, you know, each side thinks the other side has this, you know, very sophisticated network of spies who are out to get them. I think it, it's much more common that ordinary people will occasionally. Uh, when they have the chance, will give information uh, to the armies. Uh, civilians also work uh, for the armies. Uh, they get paid sometimes. Sometimes they don't. They uh, also are taken hostage, which is one thing that scholars have neglected, but I found a great deal of information uh, about in my research. Uh, the military will take civilians as hostages and hold them indefinitely for weeks or months to try to force the other army to do something. Sometimes they want the other army to release uh, a uh, an officer who has been taken and is, is himself being held as a hostage. Uh, sometimes they uh, will take uh, uh, the wife of an officer as a hostage and say that, you know, if the other army doesn't do this, this, and this, then we are going to hold Mrs. So-and-so as a hostage here in our camp or here in our fort uh, indefinitely. Uh, they sometimes uh, take people as hostages uh, because of random encounters. They'll run into somebody on a roadside or on a riverbank, and they'll take the civilian as a hostage, and then they send a message to an officer in the enemy army saying, this is our hostage, and and you must do as we ask or we're going to uh, hold this hostage indefinitely. Uh, I, I didn't find any uh, uh, deliberate executions of civilian hostages, but I did find uh, hostages who died uh, when they were trying to escape, and I did find a couple of instances where I think hostages were probably killed by accident, by, by uh, gunfire. But, you know, there never was any policy on this. Uh, early on in the war, a couple of the high-ranking officers uh, in the two armies said, we need a policy. Uh, we need to uh, figure out a way to deal with these people. Uh, the Lieber Code, uh, which was issued uh, by the Union Army in the spring of 1863, was supposed to cover the treatment of hostages, but it's widely ignored. And, and the process considers is, is, uh, is considered to be routine. You know, this is what armies do. 
And, and armies have done this, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. It wasn't uh, outlawed until, uh, I think, 1949 by one of the Geneva Conventions. Uh, but the hostage-taking starts early. It starts in 61, and it goes straight through to 65. So it, it turns uh, civilians themselves into uh, a resource, ironically. And then, you, and then you turn from looking at human resources to looking at food. Um, and, and from what you found in, in those soldiers' letters, you argue that it's quite likely that people died of starvation during the war. Um, yet you also note that scholars resist using that word. Um, how did it get that bad? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, human beings need food to survive, obviously. Uh, neither army is very efficient at getting uh, supplies to men in the field. You know, contrary to stereotype, uh, long ago historians believed that the Union Army was pretty good at supplying men in the field, and the Confederate Army never really figured out how to do it properly. Well, I found that both armies have very serious problems with supply. You know, they, they set up their depots and they, they try to transport uh, the food that is essential to get to the men out in the field. But there are just constant uh, technical problems, you know, railroads that break down, uh, supply depots that are broken into, people steal food. And then sometimes the food itself is not a very good quality. So by the time it gets to, you know, Sergeant Smith, uh, in camp, sometimes it is literally, uh, inedible. So, the soldiers turn to the civilian population. You know, they, they will ask for food from people they hope are friendly, and sometimes they get it. You know, there's some very interesting encounters between, uh, uh, Confederate civilians who are delighted to give a meal to, uh, a major and, you know, his, his staff, uh, and, and, then there are also encounters that are more um, tense, more difficult, where uh, soldiers will ask, but in a way, everybody understands pretty quickly, they're not really asking, <laughs> because they have the authority to take what they deem to be necessary. You know, military necessity is asserted that what the Army needs, the Army will take. And, and I found instances of uh, civilians who were pro-Union, civilians who were pro-Confederate, or civilians who were neutral, trying to bargain, you know, saying, leave us something, please don't take that, or or take this, but don't take that, because they, they think that their own survival uh, is important, and most of the time they get brushed off. Uh, although it's clear that there are officers and men in the ranks who feel bad about all this, you know, expressions of genuine guilt and remorse, you know, that, that it just doesn't seem right. But the Army's logic is always the same, that military necessity must prevail. So what I found is by 1863, there are people who are starving in in the South. There are white Southerners who are literally starving to death. And the, that word starts to show up in correspondence by civilians and correspondence by the military. And it's not used with a with a sense of hyperbole or a rhetorical flourish. They They really mean it. Uh, and there are descriptions of civilians whose physical appearance has changed so much 
uh, it's clear that they are starving to death. And, and medical science today knows what happens uh, when uh, a person is starving. You know, there's not only the obvious emaciation, but you, you often see uh, the uh, kind of wild, uh, glaring eyes. The eyes start to protrude from the head, and and there's a lot of emotional volatility. You know, people start screaming and crying and sometimes laughing maniacally, you know, as the, the different systems inside the body are, take, are starting to to break down and it's taking a tremendous toll on, on, on the behavior of the person who is starving. And in the last year or so of the war, people on both sides say that there are civilians who are starving to death or they have already starved to death. And we have to do something. And this this shows up in the correspondence of uh, people in both armies. But but in general, right until the end, the needs of the armies uh, take precedent. And, and I think that historians have been somewhat reluctant, perhaps, to face up to that. Uh, I think that it, it may be an echo of American exceptionalism, which I know is a phrase that you you have encountered, you know, the idea that the history of the United States is different and special and that uh, the United States has been spared uh, some of the terrible things that have happened to the rest of the human population, including starvation in time of war. Well, I I found uh, that Americans did starve to death. And it's a result of this whole complex of factors that comes into play uh, when the war begins. It's a harrowing chapter. Uh, and, and from there, you go on to look at timber. And the story is also grim. <laughs> you, you conclude that uh, by 1863, in, in parts of the South, what we're seeing is, in your words, outright deforestation. Um, and that that's, you know, that's an outcome in part intentional and in part accidental. So could you, could you walk us through kind of how it got to such a scale? Oh, sure. Well, uh, armies need a lot of timber. Uh, they put it to use building forts, uh, building their winter quarters, uh, building uh, bridges, sometimes, you know, rather elaborate bridges. Sometimes it's just um, a group of fence rails that are sort of bundled together and, you know, thrown across a creek. Uh, they use uh, wood in their campfires, uh, they use wood as torches, and they use wood uh, on a regular basis for many, many different purposes. And the South is rather heavily forested in 1861. Uh, most people think that it has the nation's uh, biggest supply of pine, and pine was considered to be the ideal wood uh, for warfare. It, it's uh, resistance to disease. Uh, it is easy to split if, an, you know, someone with an axe knows what he's doing. Uh, it's very resilient. Uh, it's a perfect wood. Uh, and soldiers in both armies head out there with axes to take down these trees. And they assert that military necessity allows them to do that. And sometimes they do it under orders. Sometimes they decide uh, if they're running out of wood for the campfire, they'll just go out one night by themselves. You know, a few buddies will head out into the darkness and come back with a dozen fence rails, or sometimes they, they chop down trees. And they take wood as needed, and they 
take from people who are supporting their own cause. Uh, you know, I, I saw this over and over again. The Union Army will take down trees on a farm uh, by uh, uh, owned by somebody who is actually serving in the Union Army. And Confederates will take down wood on a farm that is owned by someone who is actually serving in the Confederate Army. And again, uh, civilians come forward, they argue, they plead, they beg. Sometimes they get some relief, uh, but mostly they don't. So you see uh, this very rapid deforestation that happens in different parts of the region. Uh, I argue that it, it happens uh, most quickly in places where there's a lot of heavy fighting. You know, Virginia, uh, from Alexandria, Virginia, to uh, Richmond, you know, that, that territory is just fought over so intensively, and entire forests disappear. You know, eyewitnesses in both armies, civilians, journalists, they talk about uh, seeing a landscape where there's not a tree visible for miles. And how disorienting it is. And, and one person said it, it was like being on, it must be like to be on the moon. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a lunar uh, landscape. And I think the same thing happens in uh, parts of central Tennessee. The same thing happens in Georgia. It happens uh, when Sherman uh, is approaching Atlanta. And it happens uh, during the March to the Sea. Uh, so... The woods come down, and they often come down very, very quickly. You know, many, many acres can be stripped of the forest in in a period of a couple of weeks. And then that creates a whole other set of problems. Uh, deforestation creates mud, M-U-D mud, <laughs> oceans of mud. Uh, and people in both armies talk about this, uh, mud that traps uh, wagon wheels, that traps uh, livestock and sometimes traps people. You know, there are accounts of people disappearing into these mud baths. And uh, mud pools can also be a disease vector. You know, that, that's one way that, that diseases can be uh, transmitted very quickly to large numbers of people. If you've got these swampy, muddy areas that go on for acres and acres and acres, uh, and then, of course, uh, the impact on the civilian population is tremendous. You know, when when the forests go down, that means that uh, wild game disappears. You know, that was part of the pre-war diet. Uh, civilians had always used uh, certain plants in the forest for medicinal purposes. You know, herbal medicine, as we would uh, call it today, is very old. It goes way back in, in human history. Uh, so, and some of those remedies uh, we know now uh, actually did work. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just folklore. Uh, uh, some of these plants actually did alleviate uh, health problems and could heal the sick. But when these forests disappear, the, not only does the wild game disappear, which in turn reduces the food supply for civilians, but also uh, these resources that they had used to treat themselves uh, when uh, they were sick. So, so this happens rather deliberately, but it also happens by accident because soldiers in both armies often set fire to the woods by accident. You know, they, they are carrying a torch down a country road, and before they know it, a tree has caught fire. And then the, the flames just race across the landscape. 
and uh, the civilians and soldiers comment about this, you know, how shocking it is that you know, they say it's, it's kind of surreal, you know, to see uh, uh, entire forests that are engulfed in flames and burn up very quickly. Uh, but again, you know, if that will help a military objective, the armies will allow it to happen. Uh, and even if they're trying to douse a fire, it's often hard to do. You know, they have buckets of water. You know, the local fire companies have often disappeared. You know, before the war in the antebellum South, if there was a house fire, the local people would band together to put out the fire. You know, it's an expression of communalism. But as the war unfolds, those volunteer fire companies disappear. And, and even when armies want to stop a fire, if they see it as, say, moving too close to their winter encampment, it's still very difficult for them to control. So you have this massive destruction of the forest, and some of it's deliberate, but some of it happens by accident. The most visceral way that some white Southerners, white Southern civilians, felt the material effects of the war was through the destruction of their homes. Um, and this is sort of a kind of a third rail here, because um, so, certainly the Yankee ransacking and burning of Southern states has long been grist for lost cause myth making. Um, and I'm hoping that you know you can really help us better understand the reality. Um, you know, you describe the federal policies that they were specific about regarding the you know, civilian dwellings, and then you describe what the soldiers did in practice. Um, so, what were some of those discrepancies? Uh, sure. Well, well, let me address the, that first point you made uh, about that lost cause mythology. You know, that that's a centerpiece of the mythology that the Union Army burned down people's houses, uh, did it for malice, did it for no good reason. Well, the truth is that both armies burned down a tremendous uh, number of houses, uh, and they they do it on purpose. You know, sometimes to hurt the enemy, uh, they do it, uh, sometimes to punish a civilian who supports the other army. Uh, sometimes it happens by accident. Sometimes they set fire to houses because of what might happen. You know, they're afraid that if they don't burn down this house, then the other army might take it over and use it for their headquarters. Or the other army might disassemble the house. And, and this is one thing that I found it was very interesting is that, yes, both armies burn houses, but also both armies take houses apart. You know, they disassemble them to get the resources, to get the wood. I mean, uh, most houses are made out of wood. Uh, even the houses of the wealthy typically have timber frames. Uh, and both armies will, will pull a house down so that they can use the wood that that was employed to construct the house. Uh, and they typically do that with empty houses, but not always. <laughs> you know, I found instances where, where both armies uh, uh, engage in this practice. They'll show up and the, the, an officer will say, we are claiming this house uh, out of military necessity, and the family has two hours to vacate. Or sometimes they're given a day to vacate. And then they just move in and take it over. And sometimes when they leave, they set fire to it. Uh, they also set fire to houses uh, that they've used as military hospitals. Uh, if, say, especially if a house has been used as a smallpox 
hospital, uh, you know, they that's a very deadly disease, and they want to destroy, uh, if they can, the edifice because they're afraid that if anybody enters that house, including their own uh, soldiers, they might get smallpox. So they burn down houses that they've used uh, as uh, as military hospitals. And as you can imagine, the the shock uh, among the white Southern population is is overwhelming. I mean, the, the house means a lot to these people. You know, the, I talked about this in the opening uh, chapter on the Old South. You know, the house has tremendous psychological and emotional meaning as a shelter. Obviously, a place set apart. You know, this is a place where the family lives, where relatives gather, where precious uh, family mementos are preserved. And to see the house destroyed, to see it burn up or to see it be taken down is is devastating to civilians. And, and especially if it's their own army. <laughs> and you know, sometimes it is their own uh, army. But but the uh, the emotional impact uh, is extremely painful uh, for civilians. Uh, and as the as the war goes on, and more and more of the housing stock is destroyed, that's how you get a homeless population. You know, you get a refugee population of people who have to leave home because there literally is no house for them to live in uh, any longer, and they pack into the cities. Sometimes they show up at the army camps looking for work. Uh, a number of them leave the Confederacy and end up in places that we might describe as the lower north, uh, places like Baltimore, Cincinnati, uh, Covington, Kentucky, and, and, and so on. Uh, but uh, some of them stay. You know, some of them stay because they're afraid that if they leave, the, the house will be destroyed. And occasionally there are these uh, very intense confrontations between civilians and soldiers, or sometimes it's civilians and officers. And I found a couple of cases where women refused to leave the house and thereby saved it because soldiers were unwilling to set fire to a house when there were some women inside of it. Although I also found a couple of instances uh, where uh, civilians burned to death where the, the house was torched and, and people wouldn't leave and they, and they died inside the house. So uh, this is a, an aspect of the history of warfare. Of course, this has happened in many societies. And it's also an aspect of the history of architecture, you know, the, the meaning of the home. Uh, it's, it's probably the most important building in the habitat in many, many societies, including the 19th century South. Do you want to say anything else about the ways that we, we, I mean, chapter after chapter we're seeing, you know, the, again, the codes, the military codes that are laid out and then soldiers kind of just, just disregarding them altogether. You want to say anything about why, why you're seeing that happening with houses or anything else? Uh, sure. Uh, I think that uh, part of it is that the armies are composed of uh, young men who are from uh, rural areas and villages. And they come from a uh, culture where they have a lot of latitude in their daily lives. They make most of their own decisions. They are not used to the hierarchies of the military, and they don't like those hierarchies. So many of them just won't abide by it. (laughs) 
you know, they will not follow orders if they think the orders are unreasonable or unfair. Uh, and they also grow up in a culture, and this is true for Northerners and Southerners. I probably should have said that a moment ago. Uh, but they grow up in a culture where they have very little contact with the federal government. Uh, one scholar said years ago that uh, aside from the postmaster, uh, the uh, employee of the federal government that uh, people had the most uh, contact with was uh, the person who came by every 10 years to take the census. So it's a world in which the federal government, uh, governmental authorities uh, have a very limited impact on their lives. And they're, they're just not used to being part of these massive institutions that are supposed to work as hierarchies. You know, the, the officers are supposed to have tremendous power, and many of them do. But it's also the case that there are officers who don't feel like they have to abide by uh, orders. Uh, quartermasters uh, complain about this a great deal, quartermasters in both armies. You know, there's specific paperwork that's supposed to be filed if, uh, say, a uh, lieutenant confiscates food from a civilian. And the quartermasters complain constantly throughout the war how hard it is to get officers to follow procedures and the quartermasters are themselves officers. You know, they usually have a rank of captain. So you've got this population of people, uh, both men in the ranks and officers, who just uh, in many ways are not yet citizens of the modern world. <laughs> you know, they, they just don't accept uh, that the bureaucracy is something that they have to take seriously and they have to abide by. Uh, and no less a person than General John Pope uh admitted this uh pope put together uh, some orders in the summer of 1862 uh he wanted to uh unleash the power of the military and he said henceforth uh the american army the us army will live off the land uh although you know that we will provide paperwork and he had a couple of other stipulations uh you know about uh different things that the army could or could not do but Pope himself admitted six months later that uh, that part of his orders uh, in which he said that, you know, paperwork has to be issued, that it was routinely being ignored. You know, six months later, and he was embarrassed by it. You know, he said, this is uh, undermining my reputation. This is very much to my discredit uh, that uh, people are using these orders that I issued in July of 62 as a license to steal. But, of course, things like that were happening before uh, Pope came along in 62 and before uh, Lieber's code was issued in uh, 63. By 1864, the last full year of the war, you know, you're seeing fewer and fewer instances of that distinctive uh, communalism that you described in, in Chapter 1. Um, and, you know, in today's world, we might think that communalism is is most evident during disastrous times of hurricanes, natural disasters. So why do you think it, it starts to evaporate in the, in the South at that time? I think it's because uh, lots of people realize that their own survival is on the line, that, that they they have to choose between protecting themselves, you know, that their their lives are in danger, and or sharing with other people. So they stop sharing food with their neighbors. 
You know, they, they will no longer give shelter to friends or neighbors who have been uh, driven out because their homes were taken over or their homes burned down or their homes were dismantled. Uh, and it even starts to reach into the family. You know, I found a few instances where uh, relatives stopped helping uh, other uh, relatives. And, and, you know, the family is supposed to be the bedrock of society in antebellum America for both Northerners and Southerners. Uh, but that by about 1864, you know, the spring of 1864, it's clear to many people that they may have to make an existential choice that it's either they're either, they're either going to choose their survival or helping someone else. And, and most people in that situation will try to ensure that, that they can keep living. So, again, it brings us back to... uh these questions about how terrible war can be, and that's true in the United States just like it is uh, anywhere else. So by, by 1864, communalism has been more or less shredded by the war. There's still, you know, a few acts of generosity you see here and there, but for the most part, uh, those notions that had been, been so deeply ingrained in antebellum society have, have disappeared. So the war is, is really more than the white southern population can can deal with. Now, I, I think some people were very naive in 1861 about what a war might be like. Uh, the revolution, obviously, much of it was fought in the South. You know, Cornwallis defend, descend, uh, defeated, uh, let me start over. Cornwallis uh, was defeated in Virginia after a long campaign in the South. Uh, the War of 1812 uh, only lasted two years, although it did uh, inflict some damage on the infrastructure. The Mexican War was fought largely outside of the United States. So I think lots of people had a very uh, unrealistic idea about what a war could be like, about uh, the, the damage that it could inflict uh, on the infrastructure and on, on the people. And in a relatively short period of time, uh, those antebellum values are are destroyed by by the war, by the war's momentum. How do you think this, you know, especially terrible narrative of the war, this attention to the material struggles between civilians and the armies and the environmental effects of the war, how does this help us better understand the post-war period in the South and maybe just the legacy of the Civil War in general? Uh, that's another uh, great question. Uh, I think it uh, helps explain uh, why so many white Southerners are obsessed with the war. Uh, you know, this experience is seared into the collective memory, and it is an objective fact that that the suffering and the loss was was tremendous. You know, many people died. Many people lost their homes. They saw their farms destroyed. Their their homes obliterated, and there's no Marshall Plan for the post-war South, you know, like like uh, we did uh, after World War II. So these people are sort of left alone to cope with it, to figure out how to try to restore uh, society when the shooting stops. And I, I think there was there was so much suffering and so much loss, I think, that, that got imprinted on the collective memory so that it lasted not just for that generation, 
but it was passed down uh, through the generations right down to the present. You know, that, that, that this was a trauma that was uh, almost unbearable. But it's also, and, and, and that is true, it was a trauma, but there are also these other false assumptions mixed in with it that, that we've been talking about, and that is that the devastation was wreaked upon the civilian population by one army, and it was not one army. It was two armies. And also that all white Southerners supported the Confederacy, and that is not true. You know, that was not true in the election of 1860. Uh, thousands of white men in the slave states voted against uh, secession. We estimate that maybe 100,000 white men from the Confederate states served in the Union Army. You know, that, that's a lot of people. And that's an expression of, of deep loyalty to uh, the Union. But, but the, the trauma got mixed in with these falsehoods about uh, who was responsible for the trauma. And I think it's, it's had an unfortunate impact on the way that white Southerners remember the war. And also the fact that there were always white Southerners who were against the Confederacy. And, and that, too, has had an unfortunate uh, impact. And, and the, the creators of that Lost Cause mythology were uh, very uh, diligent uh, they were very good at that, at creating that mythology. In fact, you know, I, I've, I've said in my classes for years that, that the ex-Confederate leadership was much better at creating this mythology than they were at actually waging a war. <laughs> so they got that, that set of stereotypes into the collective memory. You know, they, they set about in a very deliberate fashion to to get this message out there with speeches and parades and museums and and uh, all kinds of commemorations with the statues that, you know, of course have, have continued to be controversial right down to the present. But they get that message out, and they get it into the textbooks, and it gets into the educational system. And for reasons I've never quite understood, it's also accepted by people outside of the South. You know, that, that those stereotypes spread all over the country, that the Yankee army uh, was wreaking destruction everywhere it went, and only the Yankee army, and also that all white Southerners supported the Confederacy. And it isn't really until the last generation or so that scholars have begun to seriously challenge uh, those stereotypes, but they, they've had an amazing durability. I mean, uh, for ideas that were formulated in the 1860s and 70s, I mean, those ideas have had an amazing afterlife. Well, following hot on the heels of the publication of this book, there is a closely related collection of essays you edited entitled War Matters, Material Culture in the Civil War Era. That's coming out uh, from UNC Press in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and it features a really exciting lineup of contributors. And I'm wondering if you could give us just a little sneak peek of what they'll find in it. Uh, sure. I'd be glad to. Well, I was at a conference uh, three years ago. I was taking part in a panel on material culture uh, in the Civil War era, and it was very enjoyable, and we got great uh, feedback from the audience. And I thought to myself that day, you know, we need a book. <laughs> we, we need a book of essays, at least, uh, on material culture in the Civil War uh, era. So I started contacting uh, colleagues in the profession, 
and we put the book together. Uh, the contributors are wonderful people. Uh, I happen to have a copy right in front of me. I just got my first copy uh, two days ago. Uh, I have an essay in here. Uh, the other authors are uh, Jason Phillips, Lisa Brady, Timothy Silver, Ron and Mary Zabore, Earl Hess, Robert Hicks, Sarah Jones Weichsel, Victoria Ott, Peter Carmichael, and Yale Sternhill. So it's a wonderful lineup, and the essays cover a lot of different topics, uh, many different dimensions of the material culture of the war era. You know, some of them uh, discuss late antebellum. Most of them focus on the war. Some of them are post-war. But it's about how people in the North and the South, civilians and, and soldiers, experienced material culture and what the war did uh, to material culture, how it, it changed attitudes towards uh, all kinds of objects, how it made people think about material objects in a new way. Uh, objects get destroyed. They get created. Some uh, material objects are reviled. Uh, some of them are, are now revered and held sacred. Uh, it's just a wide-ranging set of essays, and I'm very happy uh, with the quality, and I'm very happy with how the book turned out. Uh, Chapel Hill did a wonderful job. Uh, I love the dust jacket. <laughs> well, now, after your hectic fall and after both books are out into the world, what will you be turning your attention to next? Uh, that's another very nice question. Uh, I'm thinking about doing a material culture history of a group of related families in uh, Kentucky and Virginia, uh, the Shelby uh, family. These were the descendants of Isaac Shelby, who was the first governor of Kentucky. He was a combat vet from the Revolutionary War, hero of Kings Mountain and, and so forth. Uh, he ends up in Kentucky, although he has relatives all over the Upper South, and probably because of his uh, fame as a war hero and as a governor, uh, there are many uh, material objects pertaining to Isaac Shelby's life that have been, been preserved in the museums. His life is, is very well documented with the manuscripts. As you might imagine, you know, a, a governor and a war hero generates a tremendous amount of letter writing and memoirs and official papers and so on. But there are also a great many objects pertaining to different parts of his life, uh, and the subsequent generations have also preserved uh, a lot of the material culture of the family's history. And, and those objects are in Kentucky, they're in Virginia, they're in Missouri, uh, they, they show up in museums all over uh the United States. So the family is unusual in that they not only generated a lot of uh, manuscripts, but they also preserved a lot of their material possessions. So that's my next project. I've just got uh, started on the research this fall. Oh, fascinating. Can't wait. The book again today is War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. And I've been speaking with its author, Joan Cashin. Go get the book now from Cambridge University Press and be on the lookout for her edited collection on the same topic, War Matters, Material Culture in the Civil War Era, which is out from UNC Press on, I believe, October 8th. Dr. Cashin, thanks again for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>